Hello, everyone. Joshua Gilliland here, one of the two founding attorneys of the Legal Geeks, with me to discuss the Lower Deck Season 4 premiere is Nari Ely and Dana Nicholas. How are we both doing? And we'll start in alphabetical order by last name. Nari, how about you? Oh, that took me for a spin. <laughs> I'm doing great. Uh, doing even better now that Lower Decks is back. Uh, the show has consistently been a delight. Um, I'm looking forward to the rest of this season in particular, though, because I, I thought this got off to a pretty strong start. I thought that the last season was a little bit of a, a slightly disappointing season opener just because they resolved the whole Captain Carol situation super fast. Uh, with this one, I think they're doing a really good job showing some strong character development, but still writing really good, funny stories. Uh, so I'm I'm really excited. And Dana, your thoughts, please. I love it. I, I I agree. I think this is a really strong season with a lot of character development. I also love the throwback to Voyager and all of the Voyager skits. I was like, I remember that episode and I remember that episode. So it's going to make for a really great season, I think. Yes, yes. Lots of body horror in Voyager. So, and they continue that here. So let's jump into all the voyagerness with how things got real and we this is two wicks so we, we are having the two wicks uh spin on things and and out of the gate there's a plethora of issues here but one that i jumped on was whether or not this is a toxic tort case for the failure to secure the deadly flower that merges people in transporters. Yeah, the top of that containment unit, that seemed like real loose. Yeah, why was that allowed to exist? After the emergency had been resolved, uh, I would have vaporized that. Like, like, we like don't look, need... I get it keeping it for science, but just like, you know, screw it on a little tighter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they were trying to protect this endangered species, and we'll talk about that later. Yeah, endangered. So toxic tort cases are tons of fun. Uh, you know, that's like a dry cleaner that's been in business for years. And there's chemicals that have been in the soil from all the dry cleaning. Or uh, in Silicon Valley, where we had companies that made uh, semiconductors, all of the runoff that went down to Alviso into the sloughs, all that stuff is bad and it can have negative effects on human beings and animals. So to break down what a toxic tort case is and to figure out whether or not it applies to these uh, horrible flowers that can ruin your day, uh, let's break down the law on this. Toxic, toxic substances are substances whose manufacture, processing, distribution, use or disposal presents or will present an unreasonable risk of injury to a person's health or to the environment. Citations omitted. Toxic tort cases involve personal injury from exposure to a toxic substance that may be a chemical, mineralogical, biological, or radiological. In toxic torts, complex, and even inscrutable questions of medical causation often worsened by long periods of latency between initial exposure to the substance and medical discernible injury are significant obstacle to the resolution of the claim. Going on, 
generally in toxic tort substance litigation, the injury is neither traumatic nor an acute toxic response, but results from general biological disruption. The exposure is typically, though not necessarily chronic and repeated, and the injury manifests after a latent period. Well, there are some big differences here, and let's break down some of those differences, but there are also similarities as well that point that this could be uh, a case. <laughs> like, And that's the wild part of this. Dana, you got a big grin. What are your thoughts? I'm just thinking, it, it reminds me of a toxic tort, which I suffered um, as my children learned to cook. I'm just saying, kids cooking, not always the best thing. Their heart's in it skill level is just not there. Um, but I think that here, um, perhaps there's a toxic tort, just because it's it's a mineralogical or biological uh, agent that just is causing all kinds of havoc, is, is wreaking all kinds of havoc here. And they had the opportunity to get rid of it, and it had a latent effect. So they just didn't do they just didn't take care of it, as you said earlier. Yeah, and if I could contribute another thought for uh, people that may be listening who are not lawyers but love us anyway, um, uh, this also evokes, I think, the concept of just heightened liability in tort, Josh. So, like when we're talking about ultra hazardous substances <laughs> and other things, I have to imagine that this might have made the list of ultra hazardous substances, especially because as we see later in this episode, not only is it possible to merge two people, if this had been on like a, a shuttle and they beamed everybody off <laughs> with, with, uh, at, the, at once, you would have gotten the big meatball. <laughs> which uh, was not capable of, of even sustaining its own life, most likely. Uh, so, yeah, I have to think that there would be, uh, if, if not a toxic tort, because like you said, Josh, there are elements that fit and elements that don't, probably a heightened form of liability here, uh, potentially strict liability for failing to properly secure uh, and, and injuries resulting from the improper uh, securing of, of this orchid. Yeah, it'd be a case of first impression, just because there... One could argue whether or not it's latent because the flower just laying around, yeah, it's been there for years. So that does have that latent effect, but it's an immediate right. merger, which again, that might be irrelevant to the case because of the toxic flower that's around. So it would be definitely a case of first impression. I think there's arguments on both sides on why it fits and why it doesn't fit. Uh, but it's definitely uh, a hazardous substance. And I was going to say, Josh, I think if, if this didn't fit the bill for a toxic tort, I would imagine a new federation law would be passed. And as you were fond of saying, there would be a story behind that law. <laughs> yeah. Laws are not written proactively. They're, they're usually somebody's epitaph. So something bad happened. And that's why we have warning labels on fans saying, do not install on the engine while it's running. Somebody did that and they learned the hard way. This would be Voyager 2.0. Like, I yeah. think that would be the name of the law is Voyager 2.0. No. Because from the, from the episode, one of my favorite lines from the episode is, oh, it's Voyager. Stuff happens. You know, like <laughs> freaky stuff happens. So, Yeah. Yes, it did. My Voyager was there for me throughout uh, college and law school. 
And ironically, while my Jeep is in the shop for recall for getting something inspected, the loaner vehicle I got is a Voyager. And I'm not thrilled with it. But that's another story. <laughs> so, and you know, I would say that this is kind of a latency in much in the way that brownfields are created with gasoline. Um, so gas stations, they have their tanks, their underground tanks so that you can pump your gas. And over time, they start to leak and leach into the ground and into the water. Um, this plant sitting all by itself really isn't doing anything. It's not really causing any problem. It's like the gasoline in the tank as it just sits there. But it's when it comes in contact with a transporter, that's when the problem happens. And so we just don't know if uh, this plant allowed to grow if the pollen could get potentially on someone and spread and cause other issues. So that's where I think the latency comes in. You really don't know how bad the plant is until you zap it with a transporter beam. That, I mean, I think of the remedi remediation factor that you would have to scrub the ship at a subatomic level to make sure none of that pollen can get on anyone or else you'll just have to say, no one can beam to or from Voyager because of this threat. Therefore, it's a shuttlecraft-only experience. Although, to be honest, at this point, with the number of transporter accidents, they probably should just do that anyway. <laughs> yeah, but... <laughs> and then Voyager, if you, if you go on to Voyager with this whole thing happening, I think that you should not be allowed to go on any other starship because you can track back that pollen and then contaminate the entire fleet. So... Picking on another Voyager uh, from the motion picture Voyager 6, like that issue of a transporter accident, it's the only time that we've seen it go badly, like really badly. It seems to be a very safe way for them to travel and to save the budget of not having to have shuttlecraft for everything, so which was their workaround. Uh, the other issue I thought of that that I, I thought a lay person might go, what about wrongful birth or wrongful life cases? And it, this just doesn't fit. That cause of action is not designed for the situation that we have. Even though we can say that a Tuvix or a Tulips or how I'm not quite sure what the ellipse. <laughs> the ellipse. Again, uh how uh, it just doesn't apply. So the essential elements for a wrongful birth case are that the plaintiff claims that the defendant was negligent because the defendant failed to inform them of the risk that they would have of a genetically impaired or disabled child. To establish the claim, the plaintiff must prove that the defendant negligently failed to disclose or warn of the risk uh, and that a child could be born with a genetic uh, impairment. Or you get into the issue that the defendant negligently failed to uh, perform tests that would likely have disclosed that risk. Like, we're not dealing with anything like that here. We are dealing with negligence, but that's a, I mean, it's just, it's not wrongful life. It's not wrongful birth, even though we could think that, yeah, two merged people is a wrongful life like that was not meant to happen however the law that we have does not contemplate that at all i mean there might be a workers compensation issue here 
because yeah. having this type of a incident happened before, uh, the employer really should have taken precautions to make sure that this ship was tied down and everything was put away. It's not like they weren't on notice. Yeah, and I think, there, I mean, to the extent that neither of the two individuals that existed before the transporter initiated uh, exist any longer once once Ellipse comes into being, uh, there's also like a wrongful death suit on, on the table here. And I, I think there is no shortage of ways to hold the curator accountable <laughs> uh, for this accident. Um, but I, I agree with you, Josh, the wrongful birth here just doesn't fit, um, you know, would uh, to Anna or be like be considered one of the parents, but she doesn't exist, so she can't sue. <laughs> Would the transporter engineer who did it be considered a parent? Yeah, it's like it's the estates of going after the curator. It's just it's just weird. It's like and and what you realize when we get into this analysis is we're talking about negligence that he did not keep this material locked down it was in a easily to disturb jar that a couple of ensigns get to push around and take back to uh the cerrito so again it's just it's super problematic now and, and, and I also problematic is is that the transporter didn't screen this out like there should have been flashing lights and warning signals saying wait a minute wait a minute we've got some uh, pollen here we've done this before and they just didn't take care of that that's it's, a good point that could be products liability as well for the transporter beam yeah that should be a thing the fact that everyone in starfleet is inoculated against the macro virus and they don't put a fail safe into the transporter shows some very bad planning that they realized the danger of the macro virus. They did not do anything about merging people. Uh, just no, just, it's just a bad, bad thing. So Josh, do I get, do I get to talk for just a little bit about the Janeway murder too? <laughs> I was expecting you'd want to revisit that. And uh, yes. Oh, absolutely. Nothing less. Yeah, re <laughs> regale us with your analysis. This, yeah, I know you, this is important to you. Take so it away. This is background for the episode largely, so I won't take up too much time on it, but I do want to highlight here that the way this episode covers it vindicates my view, which is hashtag justice for two bits. <laughs> so uh, as we know in this episode, um, when Captain Carol goes to figure out, oh, the Voyager had this issue before, let's just see what Janeway did. She comes out of her office saying, she's straight up <laughs> <laughs> uh, later, of course, uh, the same, I think it was actually might have been slightly before, I think Freeman made the same comment. Well, she, she straight up murdered Tuvik. She's going to be disappointed. And then, of course, later when to Ellipse goes through the file as well, realize or concludes that the solution last time was to murder them. <laughs> um, now, I want to caveat that I think that the word murder may be a little bit inappropriate here, but I do think I, I would like to talk about it as a unlawful killing. Um, so to, to make it as short as possible, I do, again, one more caveat, which is there are really interesting and complicated moral and philosophical questions around Captain Janeway's decision. And my hashtag justice for Tuvix is not to indicate that I do not love Captain Janeway, because I still do. Uh, but from a legal perspective, it is very difficult to come to any other conclusion here other than an unlawful killing. Um, now, I think the uh, strongest arguments for why Janeway, uh, why 
why what Jane Wade did was legally uh, uh, was allowed under the law or legally justified would be the first one I think a person would think of is uh, it, uh, the decision was justified um, in order to save other lives. Uh, of course, because by doing this, she brought back uh, our our favorite uh, uh, our favorite characters, uh, Tuvok, and uh, not so favorite character, Neelix. <laughs> um, however, at least insofar as the law is concerned, Tuvok and Neelix did not exist <laughs> at the time that this decision was happening. Um, while it's true that they could essentially bring them back into existence by doing this, there are not two people whose lives are imminently in danger. And when it comes to uh, justified use of force um, or the necessity defense, we're talking about saving someone from imminent harm. And I mean, they pointed out that they're in the Delta Quadrant, they don't have the benefit of all the scientists that they do now that we're back in the Federation. Uh, but nonetheless, you can also take a beat because Tuvok and Neelix are not going to be less uh, alive <laughs> than they were before if you wait a little longer to try to figure it out more. Uh, so on that side, probably not justified. Then the last one, uh, this, oh, I could write a whole thing about this, but I'll just cover one more, which I think is the, most, the next most logical uh, defense, which is that Captain Janeway is a military officer and she has to order uh, soldiers to do dangerous tasks all the time. Sometimes you might order someone onto what could be called a suicide mission. Could this be considered the same? There are two problems with that. The first is that Neelix uh, or Tuvix resigned his commission <laughs> in order to avoid this exact scenario. But notwithstanding that, because you know, you also shouldn't be able to just throw down your, your uh, pips uh, the first moment you get ordered to do a dangerous mission. The other problem is that uh, Again, there are no soldiers here that he's being ordered to rescue. This is this is very much just ordering someone to go into the guillotine or something like to, to as a similar analogy. Um, and then the other part is not necessarily strictly legal, but is still like to discuss sort of the background principles of military law. Uh, at least in the United States, we really do distinguish between ordering a soldier to do something super, super dangerous uh, uh, and risky and, some, and something that's literally just go kill yourself. <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes it happens, but ordinarily there's, there's usually at least some chance that you survive or some really important benefit. Um, and in this case, because neither Tuvok nor Neelix were in imminent danger, it wasn't a rescue mission, uh, it's, it's, it's difficult to come to the conclusion that was legally justified for those reasons. So all that's to say, yes, she straight up murdered. <laughs> Hashtag justice for, for Tuvix. Problematic on so many levels. And there are other weird analogies, because I, I thought about this in the abortion context, that this is a really weird pro-life argument. However, at the moment of conception, parents don't instantly cease to exist. That, yeah. Um, and like, and that's, that's why this is different. Also, you don't like abort an eight-year-old. Like, that's a person. Like, that's, they're viable. So again, there, it's just... It's sticky and weird, and the plan to go to Earth was right to figure out what to do. Um, but I do have some thoughts. I, would, I just wanted to quickly say, I know I didn't put this in the outline, and I'll do it super fast if it's okay, Josh. But uh -huh. in the series of events that caused them to not be able to go to Earth, <laughs> uh, which is namely to Ellipse deciding that we're going to start throwing people in the transporter and making more Tuvixes. <laughs> Uh, they did create the justification for what then happens to them. Uh, so to the extent that my argument up until now is that Tuvok and Neelix cease to exist, 
Ellipse is essentially committing murder by throwing people in the transporter. The original like donors or parents, whatever you want to call it, cease to exist. A third unique individual comes into existence, which means that it's double homicide <laughs> every time they do this. And they're doing it through threat of force, through use of force, also assault and battery. Uh, there is so much criming happening <laughs> in this in this comedic sequence that by the time you get, uh, um, I'm, I'm blanking on her name, but the Vulcan, uh, by the time you mm. get, thank you, uh, uh, Talyn, uh, by the time you get her transporting to Ellipse and everyone else into the human meatball, uh, although I think she didn't intend the human meatball, it was still justified as a deadly, potentially deadly use of force in order to protect others because it seemed like to Ellipse certainly wanted to keep on doing it until the whole crew was merged. By, by my count, they got to eight to 10 people got merged. And the thing that shocked me was all of them immediately joined the conspiracy. And none of them had reservations of this is morally wrong. So uh, now granted, there's only so much time in a like 22 minute episode that they can devote devote to that. But the fact that all of them ignored their Starfleet training after being merged and went on a murder spree uh, was shocking. Because uh, like none of them questioned, maybe I shouldn't exist. I'm not going to go out and start killing others. That goes against everything that two people had learned, but they you merge them and their ethical values are now gone as they go out on a crime spree uh, to, to kill others. The other thing that I found humorous was with Talyn's uh, transporter, she sucked up two people who were on the pad that were had been stunned and were going to get merged. So it wasn't a perfect rescue like operation because at least one of them was Jennifer. So I couldn't recognize the other, but like they got blobbed uh, as well uh, when if the if the plan had just been different uh, to not pull them in, to not transport uh, all of them, uh, that could have had a, a different ending uh, because now they've experienced trauma that they would not have experienced because of the botched operation. So. I think they probably would have been sucked up and, and transformed anyway. Um, I think that it's really super problematic that she blended them all together. That wasn't necessarily, that wasn't necessary. She could have just held their patterns in the pattern buffer uh, and then waited to transport to, to, for us to get back to earth and figure it out um, without having to, to cause more harm. So again, that kind of is the, um, if, if someone's committing a crime against you, you can act in as much as it will it will stop them from committing that crime against you, but you can't go above and beyond. So if somebody breaks into your home and they're going to stab you with a knife, you can stop them from stabbing you. But if they're running from the front door, you can't shoot them in the back. Yeah, it's uh, sure it was funny seeing the blob, but problematic. And I mean, to defend to Lynn, key to the moment, coming up with a uh, solution on the fly, and they had been caught. So like if she had, if they hadn't been caught, maybe she could have had a different uh, uh, set of actions to have avoided things going completely sideways. But at the same time, they were flying a little blind with 
with trying to solve this problem of uh, the all of these merged individuals trying to recruit more. So with that, uh, Dana, did you add the issue about damage to Voyager as a violation of the California Art Preservation Act? I did, I did. And I think that this one kind of falls in line with the wrongful birth. You, you might think about it because the art, uh, the art director, the gallery uh, guy is saying, hey, look, Voyager is a piece of art. This is high art. This is fabulous. But it doesn't quite meet the elements. So in order to um, be in violation of the California Art Preservation Act, um, you have to have a physical alteration or destruction of fine art. Uh, and that's in, that which is an expression of the artist's personality. Uh, and the law has found that that's detrimental to the artist's representation, uh, their reputation. And also it's, it, it violates the public interest in preserving the integrity and cultural and artistic creations. Uh, so what is fine art, you might ask? Uh, you know, is it something that I make when I ball up a, a draft on my desk? No, it's not. Uh, in order for something to be fine art, it means that it has to be uh, an original painting, a sculpture, a drawing, or original artwork in glass um, that's generally recognized, um, but doesn't include work prepared for a contract or commercial use. So here, Voyager is obviously used for a commercial purpose. Right, they're they're using it to to run around the galaxy, and so therefore that's not the original that's not the original purpose is not fine art, but rather a piece of functional art. And generally, under the law, commercial use is usually limited to things like advertising, work for hire. Um, but we can we can analogize that to this. Excellent. Well, let's pivot over to what's happening on Voyager, as that is the kickoff. Because things go amok there. Because Voyager is a super fun site. They need to remediate the hell out of that thing. Because the macrovirus, Borg nanites, all of those are deal breakers. And a holodeck that goes to random safety settings? Problematic. Product liability. <laughs> yeah. So uh let's break each of these down while we start with the holodeck liability nari why don't you take that because settings shouldn't have random yeah so at least the way that i interpret this like series of events and kind of like everything in this show it's a little condensed so it can be interpreted in more than one way at least i interpret it such that when the uh the borg nanite starts attacking or merging with the ship um there's an error that happens but the error is not creating the new setting the error is changing all of the settings and rather than going to even safety off uh, the safeties go to random. So now, obviously, either safety off or safety random would have been problematic for, for our heroes. The fact that a random safety setting exists does seem to create a serious amount of liability. Um, it, it, it would be like, imagine if you had a car that would go into a random uh, gear drive. <laughs> like, uh, theoretically, somebody could want such a thing, uh, I, I suppose. But in general, if the setting exists, uh, you're going to have a lot of people accidentally select that setting and then get into a lot of trouble. Uh, so I would imagine, and this seems to be something that was designed as opposed to a mistake that happened in manufacturing, so it would be design liability. Um, and yeah, I just, I, there are so many problems with holodecks already. <laughs> I don't know why you would add this into the mix, uh, but the manufacturer of holodecks has to be on tenterhooks here in terms of bankruptcy. 
Yeah, but this is a post-scarcity society without money. So whatever, however you liquidate them in a lawsuit would be different. I don't know what it would look like, but it'd be different. Now, maybe that's the problem, Josh. Maybe tort uh, tort incentives don't work in this universe. Yeah, but, but they, they have to because, you know, they've got gold press latinum, right? So, so long as the Ferengi will exist, there will be money. Just saying. That means... They, they don't explain this concept socialist utopia uh, in any great detail other than everyone has what they need to survive and you still have businesses that make things on contracts in order to have starships. So it's like it's purposely weird and not defined because defining it's hard. Like it's just it's a hard thing to to explain. That's that. Uh, Borg nanites. The fact that those weren't cleaned up, I mean, like, that's just dangerous. <laughs> like, uh, I don't know how that, that got through the cleanup process. Like, because when you demilitarize a ship and it becomes a museum, they, they try to clean things up. For example, uh, the USS Nautilus, is, you know, the first atomic submarine is, uh, is a museum ship now. You can't tour the reactor. You can't tour the engine room. That's still locked up because apparently we don't want to teach anyone how to make atomic submarines by going on a tour. So you got the national security side of it and it still might be hot. So th they didn't say that on the tour, but it still might be hot. So, so that's a thing. What we're doing with Wait, 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 wait a minute. So our government allows people to go on a tour of a nuclear submarine so that they can get irradiated. Okay. I, okay. Sorry. Just checking. I don't know if anyone gets irradiated. I mean, I've toured it. Do you and know I, that they don't? I No, I Did don't. Did you take a Geiger counter? <laughs> no, but I think if people were, it's been a museum for so long and people have been giving tours on it for decades that we would have seen people with cancer by now. Well, so, you know, it could, it could happen. It could happen. I mean, look at Camp Lejeune. Just yeah. watch. One day there's going to be commercial at midnight where they're going to say, did you ever take a tour? <laughs> if so, you might be. But that's also the part of the reason, again, speculation. We're dismantling the last enterprise. The first nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, that's not becoming a museum. We're taking it apart and scrapping it because we don't want people to learn how to make aircraft carriers like that that are nuclear-powered. So again, so you have that factor. Also, if you look at the museum ships you can tour, uh, let's look at our four battleships. We, we have four Iowa-class battleships, three of which you can get a full tour of. Um, the fourth is the Wisconsin, and that's in Virginia because it's hard to get a battleship to Wisconsin. That's just sealed up. You can only do a deck tour in case we need it. So like it's preserved just in case we need a uh, a battleship that can be put back into service. Uh, I've heard people think- Well, it worked for Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, it's just, uh, the apparently the Marines would like it for shore bombardment if we have to go invade. 
but we could probably jumpstart the other three as well if needed. Uh, but that would be the least amount of work to get it operational. So we take things off ships. Like you can't go play with a live round on the USS New Jersey because that could just not be good. Uh, the fact we don't have a full cleanup of Voyager from the toxic cheese to Borg nanites to the macrovirus. Now, one of you raised the issue with the microvirus. I don't know who did, but whoever did, tackle that, please. That would be me. Take it away, Dan. Um, so the macrovirus, now that everybody's inoculated against it, and we all know about it, it, it begs the question, is it an endangered species, right? It's not a little tiny cell anymore. It's kind of big. So the Endangered Species Act took effect in December of 1973, and it's 16 U.S.C. 1531, in case you want to go read that thing, because it's kind of big. Um, but basically, the Endangered Species Act um, establishes protections for fish, wildlife, and plants um, that are listed as threatened or endangered, and provides species, uh, and it provides for adding species to and removing them from the list of the threatened endangered species. Um, and it includes wild flora and fauna. So could this be fauna? Maybe, uh, you know, and what is its habitat? We have to protect its habitat, which in this case happens to be Voyager. So, you know, what are we gonna do with this thing? Um, the Environmental uh, Species Act provides liability both civilly and criminally um, for violating the act. And so any person who, person who knowingly violates a provision of the act or any per with who has a permit and in this case they have a permit to put together the Voyager as a museum piece um, that carries a penalty a civil penalty of not more than $25,000 for each violation so do we count the violations as each microvirus it started out as one and then it separated into many I don't know uh, but it, it could be at least $25,000 if there's not a permit then civil penalties can be assessed at $12,000 per violation. And this is in addition to criminal criminal penalties that could be up to a year in prison or $50,000 in fines. So what we have to look at is whether or not this macrovirus is endangered. I think that probably it is because everybody's been vaccinated for it on the ships. Uh, and so, you know, how, where has this been? Nobody knows. It's been locked up inside of uh, a panel inside of Voyager. And I, I just, it just blows my mind that this uh, museum curator didn't take the time to scrub this ship or take a look at it. I was like, what have you been doing for years? There's cheese, there's viruses, there's everything. Um, so I, I would lean towards maybe, maybe it is a protected species. It shouldn't necessarily be out stabbing people, uh, but maybe it needs to be protected in some way. Uh, I do want to add, so I, if I remember my Endangered Species Act law correctly, there is a possible exception for uh, acting in self-defense. Um, I do want to note for anybody who's wondering, though, uh, I think there is also an exception to the exception. If you are the one that uh, that created the situation in which you were forced to defend yourself or the life of another. Um, so, you know, don't go around looking for the macrovirus <laughs> and then try to claim the, the self-defense because you, you just wanted to get that Voyager experience. Yeah, there's, there's Judge Beckerman in one of our Godzilla podcasts talked about 
like a pro I believe it was a prosec federal prosecutor that charged uh, a couple that were attacked by a bear or some creature and they defended themselves and then they were charged for it so which was uh being a yeah. <laughs> you don't have to let the endangered bear eat you yeah it's like that you, you don't but if you go messing around and you're digging in its den i mean you just kind of invited that upon yourself and so the bears just doing what bears do yeah, there's the old saturday night live with uh dan Aykroyd where they're talking about the lack of warning labels and and he says that uh there should be a sign saying don't ride the bears and um he's promoting his book mauled and uh yeah it is it's a brilliant sketch oh over oh, the fun of the 70s on snl but that wraps up episode one and now we get to episode two. I have no bones yet. I must flee. I, That's a I, great title. I admit, I like this episode more uh, just because it was of the zany factor. Uh, I connected with it on a spiritual level. And uh, I, I, I got to admit, right out of the gate with Mariner trying to get herself demoted because she has self-destructive tendencies is a hazarding a vessel. And so... This is under the uh, um, uh, USCS section 910. So it's the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And the rule states under section A, any person subject to this chapter who willfully and wrongfully hazards or suffer suffers to be hazard any vessel or aircraft of the armed forces shall be punished by death or such other punishment as a court-martial may direct. For so, curious listeners in modern times, it will be the latter. Yeah, you would have to really screw up badly uh, to get the death sentence and um, like bad. Uh, so her reckless flying, I mean, she's again, it's self-destructive uh, tendencies here, but she's trying to get herself demoted. And she tries to do that by flying recklessly. It doesn't work because Ransom's onto her game. Uh but again, that poor ensign had to change his pants. Uh, so that's just wrong. Just wrong. Uh, either of you want to jump in on that? Yeah, so I'm happy to. Sorry, I didn't know if you were about to speak, uh, Donna. But uh, yeah, so uh, she did a, does a series of things here in order to try to get herself essentially punished. Um, the first couple of things, you know, showing up not in uniform, being very disrespectful. Uh, those are all things that, you know, are actionable, but are likely to get her essentially slaps on the wrist. They would be conduct unbecoming, um, failure to follow regulations. Uh, most likely, if that was all she had done, she would be cleaning the bathroom with a toothbrush. Um, it's what the military refers to as a non-judicial punishment. So rather than have something go on your record, um, you get to uh, instead do something like have latrine duty, uh, but you can accept that as opposed to going through a court martial. Um, so, uh, but in this case, she then, as you pointed out, Josh, does do something very much a, a, a notch above that <laughs> in her quest to get demoted uh, and something that very, very likely will result in her either losing out on her next promotion or maybe getting, like you said, Josh, at minimum demoted here. Yeah. Yes. 
But now let's but get into, oh, go on. Her, her, her hazardous flying technique, though, that struck me as being extremely similar to the one in um, Brave, uh, Brave Deer, Strange New World, where they're, they're flying in to go under the radar and the pilot is like, well, I forget her name all of a sudden. She's got the short hair. She always pilots ship. Anyway, she's flying under the radar and she's oh, like, come on, Captain, I thought you were a test pilot. This is going to be great. I've done this like 150 times, you know, during the war. And so it struck me that that maneuver was very similar uh, to the one that we have in this episode. So perhaps it was a little bit scary to folks, but she could have been in control and been able to do that because she is a, a, a class A rated pilot. But there, there are some differences here. Like it wasn't necessary. Like she was doing it to be reckless. That's. I just like Mariner. Let's give her the benefit of the doubt. I mean, she is fun. She'd be good at a party. However, um, that'd be like going just because I can land the plane in the Hudson doesn't mean I should do that if I have all the engines working and I'm on final approach. Just because you can because of your skill doesn't mean you get right. it. So. Yeah. Now let's get into the menagerie and that that has human beings in it. And Nari, we can we can tag team this, but you have some issues with to to talk about uh, the potential crimes here. Yeah. So my theme for this episode is that uh, Narge, I think is his name. Narge is very, very lucky that he did not make it to the end of this episode uh, because he would have been on the hook for a lot of criminal and civil liability, at least in my view. Uh, starting with this whole, the whole premise for this episode is that he supposedly accidentally picked up two humans while sweeping up a bunch of other bipeds for his menagerie. Um, now, first of all, I'm not sure if I believe that, <laughs> given how advanced technology is. Uh, but second of all, let's assume let's assume that he's telling the truth and he uh, innocent innocently picked up these humans. Um, uh, the first question I have is: Would he be guilty of kidnapping? If we believe him that he did not do this intentionally, he lacks the mens rea um, for kidnapping, which requires that you do so intentionally. Um, however, he's not off the hook yet. Um, I think he is in trouble once he discovers, aha, humans in my cage. I did not expect you to be here. At the point at which they say, okay, would you let us out of the cage now? <laughs> and he says, no. Uh, so, you know, we can credit again, I, I guess, credit his story that, you know, he can't deliver them uh, to some Federation port or outpost or what have you and has to wait for someone else like Starfleet to come pick them up. Um, but the analogy that I would draw here is it's like two people, let's, let's assume that two people innocently wander into a, a cargo container because they're curious, <laughs> get picked up on a cargo ship and the ship sets out. The ship may not be obligated to turn around and return them to port once it discovers them, but it wouldn't be allowed to just keep them in the cargo container. <laughs> At that point, you were meeting the elements for false imprisonment, um, which include intentionally, and at this point it is intentionally, uh, uh, restraining a person or preventing them from leaving against their will. Now, granted, he's arguing that he can't let them, can't help them about leaving the, the station, but he could help them out of the damn cage. <laughs> uh, so unless, and I didn't catch this in the episode unless they wanted to stay in there which i don't think they did uh he's still on the hook for false imprisonment uh so that would that would be the first big issue i also want to note that because we've been talking about this josh that you know 
laws have stories behind them. Uh, if it is in fact true that this is super common because there is like a thousand menageries just in this quadrant, uh, there would probably be a law. There is a clear need for a federation law that increases, uh, that makes for stricter liability uh, when it comes to this kind of, of tort or crime, uh, you know, rather than simple negligence. I would argue that the federation should pass a law that would impose like a recklessness mens rea for something like this, where if you, it's not just taking due care, uh, it's you had sort of a, a reckless state of mind when it came to sweeping up all the bipeds. Yeah, this is false imprisonment at best, slavery at worst. Like there's there's no way around this. Like you took people, period. End of story. They're on display. What's wrong with you? Like this is, this is definitely not okay. They can talk to you. Does the flying serpent talk to you? No. <laughs> like, so this is, it's like, it's like saying, oh, I just can't understand bipeds. You can understand something from the universal translator, right? Because if the flying squid's not making sense, the people should be able to make a very coherent argument about why they shouldn't be in a cage. Right. And his story just doesn't hold water because he's like, oh, I accidentally got them. He put them in a habitat all by themselves and, and they were uh, getting him viewers. So he was charging people to see them. He knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah, there's a, it's not okay. <laughs> it's just not freaking okay. Which then gets us to the meat of the episode. And that's the Moopsie attacks. See. The, the, um, I mean, just really sucks the marrow out of it. So, uh, this analysis comes from my King Kong post, which has a lot of the same issues about strict liability for wild animals. And this was some fun stuff from law school, but it's well established in New York and many other states across the union that one who keeps wild animals on his premises must see to it at his peril that they do not do no damage to others. That's from a case from 1934. Wild animals are presumed to be vicious. A monkey is considered to be a wild animal. Ferai naturae. Now, if the menagerie had a charter from a legislature, and, and again, I don't know what government would do this, for keeping Moopsie for educational and entertainment purposes, then the owner would be only held to uh, a standard of negligence and not strict liability. And that comes from a case uh, with like, it was a bear on a chain that hurt somebody. Uh, and since the zoo had a charter from the legislature, it wasn't strict liability. It was a matter of negligence and he wasn't negligent. So uh, a lot to unpack there with Mupsi. Um Either of you want to jump in on this adorable death creature. I do have I do have a quick thought, which is um, one thing that occurred to me as I was watching this. Uh, and first of all, I agree with your analysis, Josh. I do think that Moopsie would be considered a wild animal. Uh, I, I believe California is the same uh, as New York and imposes strict liability. Uh, so notwithstanding that someone may have taken all the care in the world, you are uh, would be liable for all the all the bone sucking. <laughs> 
and move seated. Um, I did have an inter a, a thought, which was, um, you know, notwithstanding that at least, you know, by the end of the episode, uh, it is it is kind of established that the humans were just up to no good here. Um, uh, would it be possible if, you know, if if we were the, the defense team for these humans, Josh, would it be possible to argue that they uh, released Moopsy as a, essentially a use of potentially deadly force uh, in order to defend themselves? They were arguably, as I just talked about before, <laughs> the victims of an ongoing crime being falsely imprisoned against their will. Um, I do think, Josh, that uh, it runs aground up at the point at which Starfleet is there. So yeah. as, um, as Dana has pointed out, you're only allowed to use force insofar as it's necessary. Uh, you can't use any more than necessary. Uh, and it has to be to prevent imminent uh, bodily harm to yourself or another. And at the point at which, you know, essentially the equivalent of the Navy or law enforcement is there and they're discussing, have, you know, getting you out, uh, you can't then turn around and decide to use deadly force as sort of an eye for an eye type thing. Uh, so at that point, since Starfleet is already there, they're no longer in any imminent harm. They're about to be free or risk of imminent harm. They're about to be freed. But up until that point, I have to say, like if Starfleet hadn't showed up, but it just showed up later and Moopsie was <laughs> running around and a desiccated Narj was left on the ground, they would have an argument you know, I don't think they have to take Narja's word for it that he called Starfleet and is going to let them out. But just stay in this cage until then. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, if that were our fact pattern, they would have an argument. But because Starfleet shows up at that point, no. Yeah. I, 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 oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I think it completely changes it because it's an intentional yeah. act. And I think that would take it out of strict liability because he did keep Moopsie locked up. And the issue, the, re the reason it got out was it was let out by an intentional act uh, in order for it to go on a murder spree. So I do think he's defendable for Moopsie. However, uh, the humans are using Moopsie as an instrumentality of death. And, and I would kind of disagree a little bit. The way that I saw the episode, the humans were just trying to access the panel. We don't know whether they were accessing the panel to try to get food, whether they were trying to access the panel to get out or to communicate with other people. They weren't like, hey, here's the button to release Moopsie. They just happened to open a panel. And then so that begs the question, why the heck if you're having all these dangerous creatures and you know that people have opposable digits, right? Like, you know, I have an opposable thumb here and I can open a panel. Why the heck would you put the open the other cage button inside with another creature, right? Like, so I, I'm guessing that they were just trying to say, hey, Starfleet, we're in here. Let us out. I don't know if you can see us. It could have been a cry for help. So I, I don't think that they had the requisite mens rea. I don't think that we would be able to prove it for an intentional tort. I think that will be a fun jury question. And rewatching the episode... The panel is upside down uh, when they go on the tour to go see the humans. So I, it's it's oh the initial tour, it's already yeah. upside down. It's ah, so which was like oh oh I didn't catch that the first time, but like okay, very interesting. Um, Something that I didn't notice the first time either, but was pointed out to me is that. Uh, undercutting Narja's story that he didn't intentionally grab these humans is that the cage is like perfectly outfitted for humans <laughs> and that's like a, a beach chair or something it's it's ridiculous 
yeah it's not like they're sleeping on the floor it's it's a human habitat that looks fun and comfortable so it looks like long beach (laughs) yeah it's like it it looks like a nice day in long beach i mean i i enjoy long beach that would probably be a lovely evening but not on display no no one needs to watch me nap um mm -mm. that said this I don't know if anyone's done like the full-blown Easter egg breakdown for everything that's in there, but I enjoy that the family that goes on the tour at the end are the children or those from the children of all from a TOS episode, the orange uh, humanoids who were, you know, enslaved by the AI dragon skull rock. Uh, demanding fruit sacrifices so the fact that they're the ones on tour seeing human beings in a cage i nice nice symbolism there (laughs) so uh because they get off the planet they go live life so all good stuff so with that uh any other thoughts on the second episode that we should discuss other than I really wish we could see more of Moopsie. It's there. There will be plushies for sale if they're not already on Etsy, because uh, that's you know it was like the puppet Kayshawn, uh, this just coming out of the gate with something cute for everyone to to want to go buy. So uh, that would have been a good Star Trek Day sale. Uh, yeah. So all good, all good indeed. Um, so yeah, lot to unpack. I'm glad um we're here and that we have more Star Trek to talk about. So uh any closing comments before we sign off for the night? Nope. I'm just looking forward to seeing more of Ransom and his antics because the guy's just working on his delts and his push-ups and he seems like he's growing more he's got uh, like you said a lot more character development and he seems like he's becoming intellectually mature which is incredible yeah he's no longer a parody of Riker that's exactly right exactly he's he's not just like the jock that's there to work out I mean he's going to work out but he's emotionally supportive and encouraging he's doing all the four so there are two views of the first officer. You either get like the cheerleader who's empowering everyone or the guy who's supposed to be the jerk and keep it and be, you know, lay down the law. And so that way the captain doesn't have to be bad cop. They've, they're pivoting to him being like the MVP who's encouraging people. And that's cool. Like that, that's a nice shift uh, for him. So, so with that. Uh, uh, really quick closing thoughts. Just love, 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 love these episodes. Uh, I love that they made the decision to have the Lower Decks crew actually get promoted uh, because, you know, unless you're going to like essentially reset like the Simpsons every episode, it, you know, they, they have to go somewhere. <laughs> uh, they need to grow. Um, uh, and as Dana pointed out, it's really nice to see the development for all of the characters, including the Upper Decks, um, you know, Ransom really uh, becoming a sort of fully, f- full, f- fully formed <laughs> human being instead of the cardboard cutout of a strong man that he started as. Um, uh, And then 
I also wanted to, just because uh, I don't think we did this disclaimer at the start of the episode, and my hashtag justice for Tuvix is very controversial in the Star Trek fandom. Um, uh, none of the views expressed here reflect uh, uh, our employers, uh, reflect our views alone, and none of this should be construed as legal advice. We're all just here to have fun. It, it'd be weird if any of this has happened to you. Like, Consult a lawyer and probably an author. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I, this can be free legal advice. Don't ride a bear. Like, don't. Just don't. <laughs> Leave them alone. Uh, no, don't, don't go for a pony ride. And uh, if you've ever been on a Starship Voyager, you might have mesothelioma. <laughs> <laughs> you might have nanites. Yeah, it, there's a there's a lot, lot there. All right, so everyone, wherever you are, stay safe, stay healthy, and above all else, stay geeky. And we'll see you next week or tomorrow, depending on what else you're listening to as we get into Ahsoka as well. So everyone, be well and take care. Thank you.